All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha, also known as DPP, also known as Peachy Parsha. Because today, we also have our in-person option of joining and lunching together from Spicy Peach. So welcome to our in-person crew and our online crew. That's it. It's a party. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to tell a story about the ocean. I've told it before, so... If you've heard it, great, it's a reminder. If not, it's brand new. They tell a story about a wave. No, they tell a story about a wave. There was a little wave and a big wave. And the little wave was um, hurtling toward the shore. And the little wave was very apprehensive. Why was the little wave apprehensive? Because the little wave realized that at the end of the journey, there was a rock or rocks, and it would smash, and all the waves are thrown, thrown apart and destroyed. And the little wave is very nervous. Turns to the big wave next to it and says, I'm nervous. This is the end. We're going to die. The big wave says, the elder wave says to the young wave, my little wave, there's nothing to worry about. Why? Because you're not a wave, you're water. So if we look at ourselves as individuals and very particular, then we have perhaps what to worry about. But when we understand that we're part of something much greater than ourselves, then it's a little bit different. Okay, so on that note, let's jump into this week's Torah portion, which is Lech Lecha. This is one of the most incredible Torah portions in the entire Torah, in my opinion. I'm going to rank it in the top um, 53. That was a joke. There's only 53. I'm going to rank it in, at the top, you know, way up there. Because this week we learn what it means to be a maverick. What does it mean to be a maverick? Someone who boldly goes where no one has gone before. We're going to learn this story about Abraham and Sarah, the first power couple, the first Jew, at least Jewish power couple, a.k.a. the dynamic duo, a.k.a. our patriarch and matriarch, the ones who founded our monotheistic movement. They were absolute renegades. They were not afraid to challenge the status quo. They were counter-culturists, counter-revolutionaries. Or, sorry, they were the revolutionaries. They didn't counter the revolution. They were the revolution. The, the revolution. Um, we once had Rabbi Tzvi Freeman, as you may know from Chabad.org and other, and some of the books that he's published. So Rabbi Tzvi Freeman once did a um, Saturday night Cafe Chabad event, which, by the way, coming at some point, coming up, we're going to be doing some Cafe Chabad events. Um, Cafe Chabad, for those that, that don't know, it's our Saturday night. We got some food, some entertainment, some insight, inspiration, etc. Depends on depends on the specific one. So he spoke about how Judaism, sometimes you can get into a rote in Judaism. It's like, oh, the same prayers, oh, the same mitzvahs, the same this, same holidays. Ah, oh, it gets boring. And his point was, amongst many, his, one of his points was that Judaism is nothing if not a revolution. So it never should get boring and stale. It should never get like, oh, status quo. That's like Avram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah would be not happy with us if we were not carrying that entrepreneur, that, uh, that revolutionary spirit. We need to recognize that our job is to change the world. Change the world. We don't have Mashiach yet. The, the, the task that they started to change the world, still ongoing. We still haven't changed the world yet. We still haven't brought Mashiach. So... Anyway, that's, uh, that's a point. So Lech Lecha is the journey. So let's begin the journey of Abraham and Sarah with 
this week's Torah portion as I share my screen. Let's jump in. Now we're gonna I'm gonna balance between the chumash that we have for the in-person, which is the Gunnik edition, and the online. Oh, Mark is here. Let's let Mark in. Okay. There he is. Hopefully he'll figure out to come upstairs. Okay. So we're gonna balance the translation that we have here with the chumash with the one that we have online. We'll make it work like we do every week. Torah reading for Lech Lecha, Genesis chapter 12, verse number one. This is huge. It's, I'm trying to like really emphasize how big this is. Um, God said to Avram, oh, I'm sorry, at page 67, in the in-person, yeah, for the Chumashim, it's page 67. Online, it's, uh, you got it. I got, I got you covered online. So God said to Avram, the Lord said to Avram, remember, this is before the name change. He's not Abraham, he's not Avraham, he's just Avram or Abraham. So God says, go, go, go away, go forth. For your own benefit, Rashi explains, right? Go, go for your own benefit from your land and your birthplace and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God says, go, leave everything behind and just start moving. This is the genesis of the Abrahamic movement, Avram and Sarah, of course, mentioning the, uh, um, the couple together as, as a unit. The idea here is that you're going to have to leave behind all your comfort. You're going to have to leave behind your intellectual comfort, your emotional comfort, your practical comfort. On every single level, leave behind what you, what you feel is comfortable in order to achieve what you need to, hey Mark, what you need to achieve. Um, oftentimes, we get stuck. We get stuck in our heads. Our heads tell, uh, tell ourselves we can't do this, we can't do that. Why? Because, you know, I don't, we haven't done it before. Or emotionally, we get frightened. It's like, oh, I feel scared. Or practically, there's an inertia. There's a, there's a, a status quo inertia that sets in. And what God is telling Avram is leave all of that behind. Be brave, be bold to cut ties with the past, with your birthplace, your father's house, the land, that, uh, sorry, your land, your birthplace, and your father's house. Leave all three dimensions. And go where? To the land that I will show you. This is considered to be a major test of Avram. Will you be willing to go to an unknown, uh, to unknown lands? Right? God doesn't say you're going to the promised land. You're going to an amazing destination. You're going to Disney World. God doesn't say that. God says, I'll let you know when you get there. I'll show you. I'll let you know. Um, it's similar well, not, I don't know. I, I was going to say it's similar to the Jewish journey after the Exodus where the Jewish people just follow God into the desert. But the truth is that on some level was easier. On some level. Because they knew where they were going. They were going, there had been a promise of the land of Israel and they were going to that land. So, they were leaving a bad. Yeah, oh, and they were leaving, right. They were leaving horrific circumstances going to the promised land, so even though they didn't know how they were going to do it, you know, they, maybe the details of the journey were a little bit, you know, um, unknown, were definitely unknown, but at least they kind of had a framework. This is, you know, Avram is, he's doing his thing. He's spreading monotheism. He's teaching people about God on some level. He was already doing this? He was already doing That's it. That's why he was chosen. That's why he was chosen. Yes, yeah, yeah. As Donna's clarifying, absolutely. He already, at the age of three, had started thinking about God. It said he saw that people were worshiping the sun, moon, and stars. Well, he saw the sun, 
but the sun set after a while. So you figured, okay, so it's not the strongest. So the moon, nope, the moon also goes away. The stars, they're only also visible part of the day, part of the night. So he, he and the, the wind and the mountains, he, he did this all, all, you know, he meditated on everything and he said, look, um, no one force of nature is the all-powerful one. So either I posit that there are a bunch of parallel forces in the universe that kind of fight against each other or work with each other to make this all happen, or there's something that orchestrates it all. And it made more sense to say that there is a force that is orchestrating everything. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a logical thing. As we've discussed many times, a book doesn't write itself. A composition doesn't write itself. I know you're, what you're thinking, Ar artificial intelligence. Okay, but even then you need something, you need AI. You know, AI is not writing books. You know, they're starting to write compositions, it's a thing. But they're all, it's not being written from scratch anyway. There's, it's an algorithm, oh, it's 67. No, 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 Dr. Oh, is this what it is? Oh, look at this. Yeah. Adam to Jacob. Nice. Okay, cool. Mark showed me in the, oh, in the Rashi Chumash. This is great. Just a little, uh, let me stop sharing for a second. A little chronology, little map action from Adam all the way to Jacob. Cool. This is great. What is this? The dispersion. Last week's events, this is really handy, are right here and right there. Boom and boom. Okay, this is what it looks like. It's a little bit hard to see online, but it's really handy, handy dandy. The flood occurs in the year 1656. The dispersion, that was the tower incident, 1996. I remember 96, but not that 1996. It was a good year. It was a good year, <laughs> 1996, great year. Except if you were building a tower um, and such. Super cool. This is very handy. Abraham was born in 1948, as we've discussed in the past. All right, here you go. That's, that's for you. Okay, so like this. <sighs> Abraham was already monotheistic. Abraham and Sarah were already teaching people about God in their own way. They were already railing against the status quo. As I mentioned last week, at the end uh, on uh, probably Friday, I believe, that Abraham was thrown into a furnace, a fiery furnace, because of his beliefs in God and his... Um, his railing against um, polytheism, the idea of, of, of idolatry. Abraham was a renegade, and he got himself in trouble. And here God says, nonetheless, you have to leave where you are and keep on moving. Now, the simple understanding of this is, if you want to understand this from a historical perspective or a geographical perspective, this is a point that I believe was first made, or, or I don't know first, but was made strongly by Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan. Anybody familiar with Rabbi Arya Kaplan? A great scholar, modern scholar, passed away at a very young age. Um, Rabbi Arya Kaplan, um, I don't think he came up with this, but he writes about this idea that Abraham and Sarah were meant to move to the Fertile Crescent, I think is what it's called. I think it's called the Fertile Crescent. The part of the world at that, at that time that was really the crossroads of civilization. So instead of being kind of like in a corner somewhere, you know, thinking about and talking about monotheism, we got to get you a big platform. We got to get you, you know, it's kind of like Chabad headquarters. New York City, I mean, like it's you know, maybe not the capital of the U.S., but it's kind of like the capital, capital right? Of the world. Capital of the world, right? Not the U.S., the whole world. So it's kind you know, 
Abraham is told to go. I'll let you know where you're going to go, but where are you going to go really? To this place. But it's, it's an incredible sacrifice on the part of Abraham. He's leaving everything, what he's familiar with, he's comfortable with, emotionally, physically, psychologically. And, and, and by the way, that's when, oftentimes, when growth happens. Listen, I can't, I'm not painting everything with a single stroke, with a broad brush, but oftentimes growth happens when we are willing and able and when we actually do leave our comfort zones. When we say, you know what, I'm moving on, I'm moving out, I'm moving away, I'm just, whether that's physically or conceptually. When we cut ties with the past, that's when a lot of growth happens because oftentimes the past holds us back. That's the reality of life. It's like, you know, it's the baggage of the past is holding us back. This is a way, fresh start, new start, new opportunities. All right, let's get back inside. Um, sharing my screen, let's get back inside. Second verse of the Torah portion. Okay, here we go. God says, all right, come with me. Sorry, not come with me yet, but leave everything to the, and go to the land that I will show you. Verse number two, and... There I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, as Rashi says, with money. <laughs> In other words, I'll bless you, I'll take care of you financially. I will make your name great, or ag aggrandize your name on, on the online version. Basically, make your name great, which Rashi explains by adding a letter to it, to your name. Instead of Avram, it's going to be Avraham. And you will have also the power of blessing other people, you shall be a blessing, Rashi says. Not just you will be blessed, but you will have blessing, the power to bless others. This is big. This is the power to, to give a bracha, to, to give a blessing. We know famously, people go to tzaddikim. People go to righteous people for a blessing. I know Ray has shared her story, right? Ray, you've shared your story with your son, right? With Barry and his, his bracha from the Rebbe and, and it's, it's powerful to get a bracha. People go to the Ohel. They go to the Rebbe's gravesite to request a blessing. It's, it's special to go to a tzaddik for a blessing. You put the piece of paper. You actually rip it up before you put it in. Yeah. And, and what we see here is that God is saying, Avram, Abraham, or Avram at that point in time, you will have that power to bless. I give you the power to bless. And by the way, you know what it says in the Talmud? Tzaddik geyser v'akash baruch hu That the tzaddik decrees and God fulfills. When the tzaddik gives a blessing, God says, all right, so now I'll do it. It's almost like it forces, if you will, God's hand, which is the, which is the, um, the setup for one of my favorite Hasidic stories with the Baal Shem Tov. So the Baal Shem Tov always wanted to emigrate, wanted to move to the land of Israel, to the Holy Land. And for a while, he tried and was not successful. Ultimately, he never stepped foot in the Holy Land, but he wanted to. But one of his attempts, the story goes like this. He was traveling with his daughter. His daughter's name was Adel, kind of like Adele, but Adel. Adel. And um, sh he and her were traveling by ship. And the boat hit upon stormy waters. It was shaky and, and almost capsized. It was a disaster. And it ends up marooned or ends up docking in Constantinople, which is today's Istanbul, which is today's Istanbul, Turkey. 
Constantinople, right? Turkey. And they, it was shortly before Passover. And the Vashemtov and his daughter have nothing. They have practically no possessions. A lot of stuff was thrown overboard uh, to lighten the ship in, this, in the storm. Um, they're in an unfamiliar place. They weren't planning on being there. It's right before Passover. They have no plans. They have no food, no matzah, no, they don't have anything. So they get off the ship and they're walking the streets. A Jewish man meets them and he says, hi, it looks like you're new to town. Yes, we are. Would you like to spend the holiday by us? You need some hospitality. Sure. Amazing. Uh, he and his wife hosted them, the Baal Shem Tov and his daughter, and it was amazing. The most amazing Passover filled with delicious food and spiritual insights and it was wonderful. At the end of the holiday, so the Baal Shem Tov says to the man, he says, look, I want to repay your hospitality. I don't have any money, but I would love to repay. Can I give you a blessing? Is there anything that you need? So he says, yes, actually, we do need a blessing. What's the blessing? I have everything else except for a child. I haven't been blessed with a child. Can you bless me with a child? Baal says, sure. By next year, Passover, may you have a child. At that point, and I've said this story before, at that point, the heavens, a voice resounded from the heavens and proclaimed, Yisrael, Name was, the Bashanta's first name was Yisrael. Yisrael, you have lost all your share in the world to come. You've lost your entire spiritual reward. Why? Because in heaven it was decreed that this person and his wife should not have children. But now you had to give them a blessing. When you give a blessing, Hashem has to follow through with it because that's the way it works. Tzaddik decrees and God fulfills. But Hashem didn't want it to happen. So now that you kind of went against God's will and you're forcing God's hand, all right, but the punishment is you're going to lose your entire share in the world to come. Upon which the Baal Shem Tov smiled. And he said, ah, oh, thank God. One of the best news I've heard all day. Why? Because now I can finally serve God without any ulterior motive. Now I can purely do the mitzvahs, study Torah without any other agenda. I'm not thinking about the reward. There's no reward. It's now going to be pure. Thank God. Upon which another voice came back from the resounded from the heavens and said, Rabbi Yisrael, you've regained your entire share of the world to come. You, just so you don't enjoy it too much, this purity of, of service. Anyway, bottom line is, I only say this story really in this context to illustrate this idea that the tzaddik has the power to bless and God will fulfill. So here God is granting that gift, that ability to Abraham. Let's continue. Rabbi, yeah. Why would Hashem do such a decree that you just mentioned? Oh, I have no idea. That's way outside my... Uh, that, this, I mean, that, that we chalk up to the master plan. Why would God... Yeah, I don't know. Look, we know that there are multiple channels of blessing. There's health blessing. There's family. There's... Um, Health, money, family, and there's other channels. Those are the main three. So sometimes it hits in some areas and doesn't hit in other areas, and we don't know why. And you know why? Why? I, I we don't know why. We can't know why. All we all we know is that we pray, and we do good things, and we and we you know we support each other as we can. I mean that's 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 all we know. And what does the power? I mean, so a human blessing, like person to person, I mean, it's not guaranteed, but it's helpful. That's right. So, so great question. Donna's asking, so what about if you're not a tzaddik? Do blessings help? The answer is yes. And I want to share a story about that also. I have a lot of stories today. There was once a Fabrengan, 
by bringing in a Hasidic gathering that was taking place. This is going back a little while. I forget which Rebbe it was. It might have been the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, one of some, his Chassidim, his uh, disciples were Fabrenging, but the Rebbe wasn't there himself. And there was a fellow who looked very um, just upset. He was not, you know, he was not in a, in a, in a positive mood, very upset. And um, they asked him, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This was with the disciples of the Maggot of Mizrich. The Mag, so it was the Baal Shem Tov in the Hasidic lineage. Baal Shem Tov, then the Maggot of Mizrich, then, amongst others, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. So it was that middle generation that the Maggot of Mizrich, his disciples were, to, were getting together and fabranging, but the Maggot wasn't there. Their Rebbe wasn't there. And one of them was bemoaning the fact that he needed a blessing, but the, the Rebbe wasn't there. Their, their master wasn't there to give the blessing. So the Alter Rebbe, I believe this is how the story goes, the Alter Rebbe who was there amongst the others said to this man, his, one of his colleagues, don't you remember what our Rebbe taught us, the Maggid who wasn't there, but he had taught us that the power of a Chassidic Fabrengen can accomplish what even the angel Michal, one of the greatest angels of blessing, even that angel can't accomplish what can be accomplished by a at a Hasidic Fabrengen of wishing each other well and blessing each other well. And so they asked him to speak and open his heart and ask for the blessing. And then everybody present gave him a blessing for what he needed and everything worked out. That's the end of the story. And so from then on, we have a tradition. What a Fabrengen can do, not even the angel Machal can do. So you ask about um, um, non-expert blessings. Absolutely effective, especially by if I bring in, but we, we're meant to wish each other well and to bless. But a tzaddik has a different sort of connection, even a higher level. Okay. Yes. Two interesting rashes here. Yes. <clears throat> the first is, and I came in late because I may, may have already said this. Um, when it says, I will make you, make you of you a great nation, whereas here you do not merit having children. I did not mention that. So, in other words, in the place, in the locale that he was in, he was not destined to have children, but if he makes a location change, interesting. And the second thing is, is that it says the gematria of Abraham, of Abraham not Avram, but Abraham, is 248, which corresponds to the number of the parts of a man's body. Right, the limbs, right, there are 248 limbs. Avraham, with the extra hay, equals 248, which is a good number for... Physical, uh, physical health and blessings. Good, 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 excellent. A little numerology on your Monday morning over here. Okay, good. Now, let's continue. So God continues with the blessings. Verse number three. Um, I will bless those who bless you. This becomes a, uh, the idea that don't mess with the Jewish people, right? God says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse any person that curses you. All the families of the earth will bless their children to be like you. Um, in this online translation, all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. That means kind of using, uh, they, they, they would want to bless themselves to be like Abraham. Let's continue, verse number four. So, what did I, what, so that was the command. God's call to Abraham was to leave, pick up, and go. 
And God says, don't worry, you'll be okay. I promise you'll be okay, you'll be blessed. So what does Abraham do? Verse number four. So Abraham went, he left, as God had told him, and Lot went with him. So he went together with his nephew. As you recall from last week, his nephew was the son of his brother Haran. So he had a brother Haran who passed away. His son, the brother's son, so his nephew was Lot. Lot was an orphan. So Lot traveled together with Avram and Sarah. And, and Sarai at that point. Which takes us, um, oh sorry, and Avram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Haran was the brother. Haran was the place. I know it's confusing. Haran, I know in the English here online it says Haran. It's Haran with the Ches. So he was 75 years old when God commands. So understand this. Abraham, Avram did not become a monotheist at the age of 75. God did not randomly choose a person to, uh, to call, uh, to, to give this call to. This was somebody who had definitely been involved in monotheism, definitely been active in the field, definitely been plugged into God, um, you know, was, was, uh, was, was famous for his beliefs. But God says, we're, we're, we're going to ratchet it up a notch. We're going to take you to Broadway, or at least to, uh, to the promised land. Let's continue with verse number five. So Avram took Sarai, his wife, we read about the, the, them getting married last week at the end of the last week's Torah portion. So Avram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions which they had acquired, and the people they had acquired, the souls that they had acquired, which Rashi says means converted in Haran. That means, again, that they were active. They had brought people over to their way of, uh, of belief. So they took that whole, everybody, and all the possessions, and they departed, and they headed for the land of Canaan. Avram left with other Jews then, really. You know, were they other? Yeah, I mean, if you call Avram a Jew, so I guess you would call them also call Jewish. Them yeah, we call Avram the first Jew, but it's kind of like an honorary, it's an honorary, um, I don't think anyone was officially a Jew until Sinai. But what we would call, but what, we're going to say they're not Jewish, but the, tw the, the, the 12 tribes weren't Jewish? Yeah, I guess they were Jews. Yeah, I guess we call them Jews. Yeah, they had converted. If it says converted, then I guess it's converted to Judaism, whatever that looked like then. Yeah, yeah. Let's call them Jews. How big? <coughs> how big? How many were there? I'm not sure. Are we talking about hundreds, thousands? Seems like a lot. Seems like a lot of people had been on Team Avram and Sarai. Okay, let's continue. They arrived and they came to the land of Canaan. They they arrived. Verse number six. So Avram travel through the land. He passed through the land as far as the area until the place of Shechem. Shechem today is what is called by many Nablus. Nablus. Shechem. It's a Jewish place. Shechem. So they traveled to Shechem, which is in the plain of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the process of conquering the land from the descendants of Shem. So understand this, as Rashi clarifies. The Canaanites were then in the land, it says, but they were not indigenous to the land. It was really a Semite land that the Canaanites, remember, hold on, let me just break this down. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Yafet is like Italy, and okay, they're, they're like wearing the nice clothing. But if we talk about the other two brothers, Shem are the Semites, which includes the Jews and Abraham, and Ham, not the Semites, that includes Canaan, the, the Canaanites. 
So here it says that the Canaanites were then in the land that we will call soon Canaan, Canaan, but the Canaanites were not always there. It was really a Semite land, a shame family land that was conquered by the children of Ham, the Canaanites, and then ultimately repossessed, if you will, by Abraham and Abraham's descendants as it will play out in history. Which kind of is the Torah's way of telling us that when we think of you know, who, who has a right to the land, I mean, how far do you want to go back, right? So it's been Jewish land. So Jewish claim, okay, 1948, not exactly. I mean, which 1948? Abraham's 1948, there was a connection to the land, right? So like, it's not, it's not the UN resolution 1948 that makes Israel a Jewish land. It goes way back. Okay, but then who was there before? Didn't the Jews conquer the land from the Canaanites? Sure, but where did the Canaanites get the land from? The Torah is telling us that they got it from, from shame, from the Semites, which is where we come from. So anyway, the bottom line is there's a long-standing connection to that land. So that's where God tells them to go. That is the promised land of the destination. Let's continue verse number seven. This is a very important verse. This is the first promise of land. And the Lord and God appeared to Avram and he said, I will give this land to your descendants, or to your seed I will give this land. Avram built an altar there to God who had appeared to him. So basically, here we have a promise of land. God says, I'm going to give your children land. Now understand this, he's 75 years old, doesn't have children, and now he has a promise of not only children, but also that they'll inherit this land. Big stuff, big stuff happening. This is like the covenantal message, right? Descendants and land. Verse number eight. Um, oh, and, and, and what's Avram's response? He builds an altar and we assume brings sacrifices to God. Verse number eight. He moved his tent from there to the mountain, which is to the east of Beit El, where he pitched his wife's tent first. Arashi says his wife's tent first and then his own tent. Very chivalrous of him. Beit El or Bethel was to the west and I was to the east. He built an altar there to God and he prayed in the name of God. So he moved, he, was, he went to a different place from Shechem, he went to a different place, he built an altar there. So Abraham is moving around. Verse 9, Avram, Abram traveled periodically, always traveling southward toward Jerusalem. So he, he essentially entered the land toward the north and moved his way downward toward where ultimately Jerusalem, the holy city, would be. Now what happens, we have the next test of Abraham. I told you last week that Abraham was faced with ten different tests, ten tests of faith. The first one being being thrown into the furnace for his monotheistic belief, monotheistic beliefs. Then it's the test of will you travel, leave home, you know, and to, to, a, to a location un, unspecified. And now we have additional tests. Test number four and five. What were tests four and five? Number one, the famine. Sorry, number four, the famine. And number five, Sarai's abduction. Let's read about this as we continue the narrative. Verse number 10. And there was a famine in the land of Canaan. Just as soon as Abraham gets there, there's a famine in the land. So you can imagine Abraham saying, I left my home. God, I'm trying to work with you here. Right? I left everything behind for you. You told me that the land that I take you to is going to be a, a, a blessing. It's, it's all going to be good. But I'm here now and there's no food. So what do you want from me? There's a famine in the land. Let's continue. Avram went down to Egypt. So Avram doesn't kvetch, 
doesn't complain. I know, was he even Jewish? I don't know. Anyway, he d- didn't complain, didn't kvetch, didn't say, God, why'd you take me here? I should have stayed home. Doesn't say that. That's what the Jewish people would say later on after the Exodus. But Avram says, all right, you sent me to Israel. There's a famine. All right, let me go where there's some food. I'll go get some food and go back to Israel. Avram went down to Egypt to settle there temporarily because the famine was severe in the land of Canaan. Verse number 11. Then when he approached Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, he said, until now I have not noticed. That's what Rashi says. But behold, now I realize that you are a woman of fair appearance, or in this Chumash, you are an attractive person, attractive woman. Now, what does it mean? He didn't know his wife was attractive. It says that Sarai, Sarah, was one of the most beautiful women that ever lived. That's what the Talmud says. She was so beautiful. It's breathtaking. So what, Avram didn't know? He didn't realize that she was beautiful? He was married to her. What do you mean? It means, according to the commentaries, that he didn't objectify her and, and, and look at her as a beautiful woman, right? He respected her, his wife, his partner, his, his partner in, in, in their life mission together. They built the first, I'm just gonna call it Chabad house. Open up on all sides, come on in, we'll, we'll feed you, we'll educate you. I mean, that's, that's what they built together. He didn't objectify her as someone who was, yes, she, had, she was beautiful, but that's not who she was. But now that he goes down to Egypt, and now he's thinking, you know, what are the Egyptians going to think? Now, why is it about Egypt? Why wasn't it when he went to Canaan on this journey? Because the Egyptians were known to be very immoral. So now he's going to Egypt. In fact, it's called Erevas Haaretz. That was, the, that was what Egypt was known as. Erevas means like the nakedness of the earth. They were the most immoral nation at that point in time they were the mo- they were known for immorality the, okay so so going down to egypt abraham is now thinking hold on one second we're going to get down to egypt and they are all about objectifying women and now what's going to happen is my wife is going is going it's it's, it's going to be a problem here so that's what he says now i know that you're a woman of fair appearance or you're you're attractive it's not he wasn't a newsflash, but he was now saying, now I'm thinking along these lines, and now we have a problem. What, what's the problem? Verse 12, it will come to pass that when the Egyptians will see you, they will say it's his wife, they will kill me and keep you alive. In other words, the Egyptians, because of their immorality, they're going to kill me and say, oh, she's a married woman, so we can't be with a married woman, so let's kill the husband, let's kill Abraham. Oh, and now we can do whatever we want with, with this woman, yeah. But Rashi has a slightly different take. Sure. <coughs> its take, <coughs> excuse me, is that it, and Rashi says, and now we are coming uh, among swarthy and ugly people, brothers of Cushites, and they are not used to a beautiful woman. Abraham was throwing some shade on the yeah. Egyptians, saying, yeah. the Egyptians have never yeah. seen someone as beautiful as yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, they're not even going to know what to do with themselves, you know, because of your beauty. Good, 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 good. Yeah, that's another take on it. But on a, I, and I don't remember exactly where which commentaries say what I'm saying. But I, it's a classic understanding that Abraham wasn't looking at his wife through the through those eyes. That's not how he looked at her. Of course, he saw that she was beautiful, and of course, he loved her on on, on every level, including the physical level. 
but he didn't objectify her. It wasn't about, that's not who she was, right? She was a person. She was a human being. She had, he respected her. So we could all learn lessons from, from, from Abraham's, uh, um, uh, uh, right? From Abraham's view of his wife. But now he's faced with an issue because he knows how immoral the Egyptians are and how they're going to see her and how they're going to lust after her and how they're going to essentially kill him and, and take her. So verse number 13, Abraham hatches a plan. What's the plan? He says to his wife, yeah, sister, exactly. Please say that you are my sister so that they will favor me because of you and my life will be spared because of you. As, uh, or here it says it'll go, well, uh, yeah, basically the same thing in the online thing. Basically he says, look, so let's, you pretend that you're my sister and that way they're not going to kill me and if they don't kill me, then I have a chance of, 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 of helping you and to be safe. In other words, if they know that we're married, step one is going to be get rid of the husband. And now you're on your own. Now you're really vulnerable. So if we say that, I'm, that, you, that we're brother and sister, so they're not going to kill me because they don't need to get rid of me. And then they'll, they'll uh, because they like you, so they'll, they'll, as the brother of the sister, they'll give me covet, they'll give me honor. And once, I, and, and once we're, we're schmoozing, I can already facilitate things to prepare. To, sorry, not prepare, to, uh, to protect you and to save you from harm. Although that's not mentioned here, Gifts. gifts. Yeah, they'll give him gifts. Well, but the point is, what's the better option? That they kill Abraham, now he's done, and now Sarai is on her own in Egypt? Or that Avram is, is alive, they like him, they're giving him gifts because he's the brother of this, of this beautiful woman. But meanwhile, meanwhile, he's able to help keep an eye out and help protect her on some level. So this is going to be the better of the two options. I mean, I think it's, it's logical that it's the better of the two options. Let's continue reading number two because uh, today is Monday after all, so we're up to the second reading. So this is what happened. Genesis chapter 12, verse number 14. In the Chumash here, it's on page 71. So it so happened, came to pass that when Avram, when Abram came to Egypt, this is exactly what happened. The Egyptians saw that the lady was very attractive. Right? That's the first thing they saw. They didn't see a woman. They didn't see a human being. Nope. So let me start again. They didn't see a human being. They didn't see a woman. What did they see? They saw someone who was attractive. Again, that's, that's, that's what they saw. You see what you want to see. Verse 15. So Pharaoh's ministers, the princes, saw her, and they praised her among themselves, Rashi says, that she was fit for Pharaoh. In other words, they were, um, they praised her to Pharaoh. They said, oh, look at this. She's beautiful. Huh? Have you ever seen someone like So what, what happened? So the lady, the woman, was taken to the house of Pharaoh. Verse 16. And indeed, exactly what Abraham predicted happened. And he bestowed gifts. He benefited Abraham because of her for her sake. So Abraham had flocks, cattle, donkeys, men, men servants, maid servants, she donkeys and camels. He got lots of stuff because of his wife. So they're showering him with, not, well, because of his wife, slashing this, they thought he was his sister. So they're showering him with gifts, right? It's like buttering up the brother. And meanwhile, the fulfillment of God's promise is happening. Remember what God said to Abraham? God says to Abraham, hitch your wagon to me, or your star, whatever it is, to me. Follow me, and I'm going to take care of you. You'll be wealthy, famous, 
um, influential, the whole deal, the whole nine yards. And, and, and when Abraham first gets, when Abraham and Sarah first get to, uh, to Canaan, there's a famine. Now they have to move, or they have to at least go to get some food. And you think it's a detour. Detour? Downgrade? Detour? Descent? None of the, none of the above. Gifts. Already, even amidst the, the descent to Egypt and the potentially dangerous situation, already the fulfillment of God's promise is happening, where Abraham is now becoming very wealthy. Let's continue. Don't worry, God's going God's to take care of Sarah, Sarai as well. She's not going to be in any harm. Verse number 17. God afflicted or plagued. I love this translation online. Plagued. It's, I guess it's a foreshadowing events that would happen a few hundred years later. God plagued. God afflicted Pharaoh and his household with a severe disease because of Sarai, Avram's wife. Oh, sorry. Because Sarai, Avram's wife, told an angel to do so. So basically... So, I, that's Rashi. Okay, basically on behalf of Sarai, um, God brought this plague on Pharaoh and his household. Verse 18. Rashi says, he was stricken with the affliction of R-E-S-A-N, to skin disease, by which relations are difficult for him. Yeah, seems like some sort of uh, disease that would make it impossible for him to even think about doing anything to Sarai. Yeah. He hit him where it counts, basically. I'm just saying, right? God, God plagued him, not with like, uh, you know, um, whatever. It wasn't just that. Anyway, good. Let's continue. Verse 18. Pharaoh realizes that, uh, listen, the Egyptians believed in supernatural forces. They believed in, in higher forces, right? Even, even the Pharaoh believed in something, something beyond. So Pharaoh realizes that something's, something's up, because this woman is brought to him, and before anything can even be thought of happening, like he, he's getting sick, and so he summons Abraham. Pharaoh summoned a Abra Avram, and he said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? I guess he realized, like, oh, he shouldn't be with her. They're probably married. So why didn't you tell me this? Why did you say, she's my sister? causing me to take her as a wife for myself, or almost taking her as a wife. Look, here's your wife, take her and go. He basically said, dude, you messed me up. What are you doing? How come you didn't tell me the truth? I was almost, you know, I'm thinking about being with her. That's it, guys, go home. Pharaoh, uh, verse 20. Pharaoh gave men orders to protect Avram. They escorted him and his wife and all their possessions. And now, no harm happened. Nothing bad happened. They got food. They got cattle. They got help in the house. They, have, they, they just became extremely wealthy because of this descent to, um, to Egypt. The reason why I'm emphasizing this is because one of the most magnificent talks that I've seen of the Rebbe on this Torah portion, Lech Lecha, deals with the following topic how we can understand how everything that occurs in this week's Torah portion, no matter how bad it looks, is really a blessing. Because the word lech lecha means go forth on your journey, which means a journey upward and onward. And yet, every turn in this week's Torah portion, 
this mishap and that change of plan and that disaster, as we'll see in this week's Torah portion, one after the other. But the Rebbe says that nothing bad is happening because if you keep on reading, every closed door, every potential mishap actually leads to a breakthrough. So even in that moment where things look a little bit dodgy, it's really intended for blessing, which should open up our eyes, the Rebbe says, to the blessings and how they unfold in our lives. Oftentimes, we look at things and interpret them as negatives, but really, if we're really opening up our eyes, if our eyes are really open, we'll see, no, 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 this wasn't a, a negative. This was a blessing. Just had, had to realize it. Abraham goes down to Egypt. He gets food, he gets wealth. He get, and what happens to Sarai? Nothing, zero. She's taken to the palace, hangs out for a little while, and then is sent home with gifts. No harm, no foul. Yeah. I've got <clears throat> what is um, Be'er Basada? Be'er Basada. It's probably a commentary on Rashi. Because Rashi, just to clarify, um, Rashi is the most famous biblical commentary, but on Rashi, there are dozens of commentaries to explain what he tried to, what he was explaining. Yeah. Well, I guess in that commentary, it says that uh, Abraham was not interested in gifts in order to enrich himself. He knew prophetically that his sojourn in Egypt was precursory to a sojourn of his descendants there. He wished to receive gifts so that his, his descendants too would not leave Egypt empty-handed. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So the Be'er Basada, as Mark is saying, says that Abraham was foreshadowing what would occur later on in history in Egypt. Because if you think about it, this episode, it very closely mirrors, well, I mean, it took a little longer, but it, it, it mirrors what would happen later on in history with his descendants, where the Jewish people would go down to Egypt also for food in the times of famine, right? They would get stuck there, but then it was real slavery for a few hundred years, but then they would leave with great wealth. So you had some of that. This probably leads, if I'm not mistaken, the Ramban, Nachmanides, to say either this episode or other episodes, maybe even this one, if I had him across Godot's, I would look it up. I do in the library, but I'm not gonna shed out to get it now. He says, Maisa avos simulabanim. What happened to the patriarchs is a sign or a signpost or a portent to what would happen with the children, with the not the patriarchs, but the not the forefathers, but the the children, the descendants, with us, the also, Jewish people. Also Pharaoh was deceived. Exactly, with the nation of Israel. Also Pharaoh was deceived in both situations. Right, Pharaoh's deceived. There's, right, so if we start from the beginning, so there's a famine in Israel, Canaan, so they have to go down. Food, there's deception happening different ways, you know, that sort of thing. There's maybe a little bit of, okay, I mean, the, the, the extent to, to which things got bad here is way less than it got bad later on in history, but at least on a basic level, that, that ground was, was already, that path had been trodden of, of a Jew coming down you know, getting entrenched on some level and then leaving with this incredible wealth. So, which really means that we don't have to think that we're the first ones down. We're not the trailblazers. It's been done before. It's, it makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, Donna. So, you always remind us not to despair because Hashem has us covered. Right. So, so when, so the, so when um, Abraham was deciding, you know, 
can't go as my wife, you have to go as my sister. Right. So he wasn't despairing, he was just making a plan. Making a plan, yeah. yeah. You know what, but let's ask it as a question. Don is pointing out something. Hold on. If somebody really believes in God, then they believe God's going to take care of things. So why doesn't Abraham say, you know what, Sarai, you're my wife. Let's say you're my wife and, and God's going to protect, God's going to provide. So I guess... I don't have any, you know, um, additional insight on this, but I, well, you're, you asked the question and answered, so I'm just sharing. The answer is probably, most likely, that Abraham realized that along with God's supernatural blessings, God wants us to make a vessel. God wants us to do our part and make it work on a practical level. So what that means is that when there's a famine, we don't say God will provide. We go down to Egypt to get food. And when there's danger, we make a plan. We do some, you know, some, we make a plan to make it work to the best of our ability. But we know that our plan is not going to be successful because we're so smart. We know that Eve, it's almost like God told us to make a plan, so we're making a plan, but it's only because God wants us to make the vessel. It's kind of like work, right? Is, does the money come from the work or the money comes from God in the, in the vessel, in the cup? that is work. So it's like, so which affects the, the psychology of, of, of work. Am I working to create wealth? Or am I working because God told me to do, to work? Which is a different, it's a different experience. Because one could become overwhelming or obsessive. I could become a slave to the work when I believe that's the source. Whereas when I understand that God's the source and God just told me to, 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 to do the work, then it will never get in the way of the spiritual part of it. Because how could it contradict? If God is the one telling me to work, then how could I work in a way that contradicts what God wants? That, that doesn't make any sense. Because if I'm only doing it for God, then how could I go against God while I'm doing it for God? By the way, this idea about work is one of the later chapters of our Sunday text, Overcoming Folly, the Kabbalah and Coffee. We'll talk about the folly of work, where a person believes the more they work, the more money they'll make, the more successful they'll be, etc. And the folly there is not realizing that it's coming from God, that the blessing is really coming from God, and this is just a vessel. Basically, what I just explained is expanded on in, in that section. There's an interesting Rashi here. Yeah. It says, uh, when the, the Torah says, but it, it occurred with Avram's coming to Egypt, Rashi says it should have said, with their coming to Egypt. Mm. But it teaches us that he hit her in a box. Yes. And because of her... And because, and because the Egyptians claimed custom duties, they opened the box and they saw her. So this was his cover story. Yeah, literally his cover story. <laughs> so, right, so Mark is pointing out that um, Abraham actually hid her, hid Sarah, um, Sarai, his wife, in a box, which, listen, what does that mean? Like in a trunk? Like, I, it's hard to know what box there means. It's probably not anything that we're, huh? Could it be like a casket, a coffin, something like to look like? Maybe a coffin. I have ne I've never seen that that specific angle taken on it that he was, you know, pretending that she was deceased. God forbid. I don't. I, so I'm I'm not sure exactly, you know, how, how to to visualize that in my own mind. But on some level, it, what it means is that he was trying to avoid them seeing her at all. But if they found her, then the story was going to be, "This is my sister." Again, doing things on the ground to kind of, you know, alleviate the thing. So knowing that they objectify women, knowing that they more than objectify, that objectification leads to abuse of women in Egypt. So knowing all that, he wants to protect her from being at all discovered, 
When that fails, the backup plan is, okay, sister, that way I'll still be around to protect you on some level, as opposed to saying I'm the husband, and then the first thing is, he's gone. He's just, he, he's eliminated, and then now she's, now she's alone in Egypt. Okay, I guess you could argue why did they go down in the first place? If it's such a dangerous place, then don't even go there, but you gotta eat. I mean, I, I'm sure they, they, they weighed pros and cons. Um, and of course, with belief in God, it just makes, makes that journey that much more easy to, uh, to decide. Genesis chapter 13, verse number one. All right, that's the last four verses, and then we'll wrap up for today. Again, I, 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 there's so much richness in this narrative. It, there's so much depth in the narrative, but even the narrative itself is so, so delicious. It's so, it's so captivating. So I, I'm just, I'm, we're really today focusing on the narrative itself. And Abraham, Av, or Avram, Came, uh, went up from Egypt to the south of the land of Israel, both he and his wife and all their possessions together with Lot. I, that's a different order of the, the online. The online says Abram came up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that was with that and all that was his and Lot with him to the south. Okay, it's saying the same thing. So they left Egypt and they went to the south of Israel where Jerusalem would later on be located. Verse number two. Avram was heavily laden with cattle, silver, and gold. So already, check, check box, Abraham will become wealthy. Check, that just happened. Verse number three. Um, Abraham journeyed, retracing the same route and same lodgings from the south, Egypt, passing Beit El until reaching the place where his tent had been previously between Beit El and Ai at the site of the altar which he had made there to start with. Abraham, Avram prayed there in the name of God. So basically, verse three, he went on his journeys from the south until Beth Bethel, until the place where the tent was previously, okay? Place the altar been made. Okay, and Abraham called there in the name of the Lord. I'm just reading it online, same, same idea, same, same basic uh, idea, just different words in the translation. So what's the point? The point is that Abraham is now back in the land of Canaan with food, with wealth, with uh, some honor now because he had successfully navigated that episode with Pharaoh, with the king of Egypt. You, you, you understand now, Abraham is wheeling and dealing with the king of Egypt, with the Pharaoh. He's, no, he's not just, Abraham's not just some, you know, monotheistic guy. He's like, he's, he's got some, 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 uh, some high-level conversations here, high-level negotiations. So already Abraham is becoming pr a prominent force and a, uh, a very influential force in the, in, th in the region. And that's obviously going to set the stage for his influence otherwise. Okay, so that's the narrative for today. There's obviously a lot to talk about. And, and the main theme that I want to emphasize, and, and then we'll just we'll, we'll close it out for today. The main theme that I want to emphasize is the idea of trusting in God and trusting that even when things look like they're going south there's a blessing in there that, that is yet to be uncovered but it requires us to stay calm and stay positive and stay trusting in God it's like God says do you trust me Abraham sure do you trust me to take you where you don't know where you're going yes it's like that thing where you fall backwards and you trust that somebody's going to catch you God, uh, Abraham says, I trust. God says, okay, do you trust me when you get there and you won't have any food? Do you still trust me? 
Yes. Do you trust me when they abduct, when they take your wife? Yes. Okay. This is, this is a lot of trust. And God says, good. You trusted me. These are the results. Everyone's safe. Everyone's happy. And you're exceptionally wealthy and influential and, and setting the stage for that, that influence that's going to happen. So it's, the question is in our lives. We translate, like when things go south, when, thing, when, the, when the plans that we had, that we thought we had, don't work out, do we panic? Or do we summon our trust? We say, you know what? This is all from God. I trust, I trust that this is going to work. I trust God. Do we do that? Do we, can, can we do that? And it's not a question as much as it is a, um, a statement and a, a story that encourages us to, to live with this in our own lives, to trust God that God will provide. Yeah. Why was up used? In other words, when it says uh, Avram went up from Egypt. Right. Uh, yeah, Rashi says uh, to go up, to go to the south would really mean, he doesn't say that, but in other words, how would you say go from up Egypt, right. to go south? Right, right, right. It would be up to go north. Right. Up, not to go south. Right. That's my question. Yeah. So Mark's question is, and maybe based on Rashi, is it says that uh, Abram went up from Egypt to the south of Israel. Well, that's not necessarily geographically up. That's not north. That's actually south. So the, the idea here is that any time we talk about Israel, it's always going up. <coughs> Wherever you are, like even if you're in, let's say you're in Russia, Right? So you're make, you still make Aliyah to Israel. Even though you're going south, it's still called Aliyah. It's still called going up. Because it's not just spiritually. on the compass. Spiritually. Right? Spiritually, it's, an, it's, it's going up. It's not necessarily on the compass. Um, so yeah. Good. So what's the message that, I, that, I, that I'm, at least personally, I'm carrying from today's uh, conversation? It's the idea of trust in God, especially when things go, things go, go haywire. Because that's almost the sign that there's something special here. Right? There's, some, there's some door that needs to be opened that you wouldn't have gotten to had you not been derailed, had you not been detoured. You know, you find yourself now in Egypt. Like, I was not planning on being here. That wasn't the script. Why am I here? So we can go kicking and screaming, or we can say, God, I know you have a plan, and I know that there's some magic here. So let me go with it. I have to also use my own brains. I've got to use my own you know, intuition and, and, and to the best of my ability to figure out how to navigate the situation. But I don't panic. And I don't question. And I don't, uh, you know, um, uh, what's it called again? I don't uh, protest. Recognize that here's the blessing. Abraham did that. Listen, he's Abraham. So, like, you know, it's, it's a, hard, a hard comparison. You know, like, let's be like Abraham, but let's be like Abraham. We're not going to get there 100%, but let's, uh, let's, uh, let's strive at least a little bit. Tomorrow, we're going to read about the very fascinating episode where Abraham and Lot part company from one another and the war between the five kings and the four kings. All that is coming up in tomorrow's edition of Daily Power of Parsha. All right, any questions or comments? Ray, Sarah, oh yeah, Sarah. No, I just wanted to say thank you. Okay. Pleasure. All right, hold on one second. Donna, jump in. So just reading the commentaries, it seems Ramban had a completely different take, like actually being accusatory of of, of, um, Avram. But my question is, since it seems like Ramban is often right at opposing to Rashi, so is is it that he's also as revered as Rashi because we want to have different opinions? Yeah. 
So Ramban, Nachmanides, just to explain your question, Nachmanides, who I mentioned before, he says that Abraham actually didn't act so, so well. He should have trusted God purely and not made a plan. He should have put his complete trust in God. She's my wife. That's it. And trusted that God would have protected him and her nonetheless. So the question is, so who's right? Or should we say that Rashi is right and Ramban is like second tier? No. No. 70 facets. 70 facets, as you know. Right, Donna? 70 facets. Shivan Panamatora. Rashi's right. Ramban's right. I know they say completely different things and they, they disagree with each other. But on some level, each one has a truth. Torah is like the diamond or like the gem that every time you turn it, you see a different refraction of light. So based on their own individuality, Rashi and Ramban, and what they bring to the, to the biblical commentary table, you have another angle that's brought out. And sometimes the message that we need to live with is we have to make a plan. And sometimes it's surrender and, and, and trust completely. And sometimes we don't make a plan. How do you know when to do this, when to do that? When to Rashi and when to Ramban? Consult a good friend or, uh, or a mentor or something like that. It's, it's, it's not easy. So, but each one, each one is right. No, as far as though where they rank as, um, um, scholarship-wise, they, they pretty much rank. They're, they're from the same era. They're both considered Rishonim, which means early commentaries. Um, they're both well-respected, and they disagree. The commentaries of that era were often disagreeing. They would cite each other and say, I look at it differently, always respectfully. Um, but definitely there's... Um, so it's like a formal debate, right? You know. Yeah, but, it's, but it wasn't done in the context. It wasn't like... It, there, there's a debate, but it's, it wasn't like they targeted each other directly. It was kind of each one wrote their commentary, yeah. and they referenced each other on, on, on occasion. Not always. They referenced each other. But Ramban, amongst others, references. Rashi doesn't usually reference anybody. Rashi, because Rashi is so succinct in his commentary, the brevity is so incredible. Rashi encodes in just like a few words what other commentaries would need to write like paragraphs about. You see some commentaries, paragraph, paragraph, paragraph. Rashi writes it in a line or two, which is why you, you have so many commentaries on Rashi to open up, to expand on what he was writing and what his intention was. And then you have different opinions as to what Rashi even meant. But that was Rashi. It says Rashi started off with a longer commentary. Over the years, he whittled it down to the basic essence of his commentary. And something special about Rashi, but Ramban is also very revered. Ramban also includes some Kabbalah in his commentary. Not always, but he includes spiritual um, thought as well. Rashi typically deals with more of a straightforward approach. Writing short is much harder than writing long. Yeah, 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 yeah. As Mark is saying, when it comes to writing, to write it with less words, to write it short is much harder than write it long. I remember when I used to write for Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Um... I was working for him on some weekly, um, a weekly publication that would share essays on the Rebbe's insights into the Parsha. And I remember one of his points of guidance was, um, I forget the, the, the exact quote, the exact line, but it was, it was basically, cut it, you know, if you could say it in one word, don't, don't use two words for it, something like, along those lines. Or one sentence, don't say it in three sentences. Keep it short. Anyway, good. Ray, it's good to see you. Sarah, it's good to see you. Olia, it's good to see you. And of course, everybody who's joining online, 
eventually. And those who are here in person, Mark and Donna, it's great to study together. We'll see you all tomorrow. Pleasure. Pleasure. Have a great day. Talk to you guys soon. See you guys soon. Right. Good. Made sense? One quick question. So I 